Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale our business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special guest. Her name is Deepa Batru, the founder and CEO at Pensara Design. Deepa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's, it's really my pleasure and to be really great to have a little bit more of insights on who you are and what you are, the amazing work that you are doing. So if you don't mind to please introduce yourself, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Um, so Mike, I started off as an engineer. Um, like most uh, people in India, I um, thought I wanted to be an engineer because it was a creative field. You could build things, you could build experiences. And I started off by doing a graduation and um, an undergrad in science, computer science and uh, statistics. Um, my very first job, I wrote the operating system for part of the operating system, of course, for digital Unix. And I know I'm dating myself here because many, many years ago, um, many people don't even know what Unix is, but you know, my first four years, I actually wrote what's called the BIND, which is the DNS uh, name lookup system for the operating system. And um, it was actually a really, really good experience for me. And in those days, when you installed the uh, operating system as like movie credits, all our engineers, all the engineering na engineer names used to, you know, scroll up while, you know, the operating system loaded on your computer. So I remember as a young engineer feeling that deep sense of pride um, because I literally had my name on my work. Um, and that was an early lesson, Mike, for me to say, you know, whatever I do in my career, I need to be proud enough to be able to put my name on it. Um, I, during that time, I asked the question, I said, I wonder if system administrators can use the service that I'm writing. And I heard a chair drop in the office. It was basically the human factors person that was like, oh my God, an operating system engineer asking a question about customers that didn't happen very often. So Paul was his name, Paul was the human factors person. And a lot of what I know is thanks to Paul because he taught me on the job um, how to understand customers, how to learn about them. Um, from digital, I moved to Merrill Lynch where, you know, those were the early days of the internet. We were discovering, um, you know, the power of the internet. And I was able to influence um, how a large company like Merrill Lynch thought about their customers, where large trustees uh, with more zeros to their net worth than I could even decipher bought a computer just to be able to look at their network online. And so it was very easy as an engineer to get carried away with, hey, you know, there's this cool feature here and there's this cool feature there. But it was really important to understand customers. And again, the big lesson that I learned from my experience at Merrill was how um, understanding customers can actually influence the business and the business model that a company goes after. Um, it was the early uh, dot-com days. And by the way, digital and Merrill Lynch, this is all in the East Coast in the US, um, in New Jersey. 
and um, it was the dot-com days and everybody was um, in a startup. So my sister who was in the Bay Area in California, she called me and said, what are you doing in New Jersey? Like, why are you in New Jersey? Come here, this is where all the action is. And we said, well, you know, if we get a job, maybe we'll consider moving because there was this buzz in the, um, you know, in that startup uh, boom then. And before we knew it, we had jobs, right? It was very easy to find jobs at that time. All you needed was a pulse and you got a job. So we had pulses, so we got jobs. We moved over from um, one end of uh, the US to the other and uh, started working in the Bay Area. And I want to say that startup had such a huge impact on me. Um, did everything from coding to professional support to design and everything else that you know needed to be done. I learned about how to run a company, how to really work with enterprise clients. Um, and I started to uh, pursue more in a focused manner, my ability to focus on the product itself, product management and design. Um, and you know, very quickly the dot bust happened. There was a lot of very bad behavior that was going on. And for me, integrity is paramount. I want to be proud of the company I work for and proud of my work. So I ended up moving to um, a company where designers have, um, you know, it's a very desirable place for designers. And uh, that was Intuit. Um, I worked at Intuit for almost uh, 14 years, about four years in the US and 10 years in India. Um, and it was just um, a very, very amazing experience to work in a company that really focuses on everybody in the company needs to understand their customers because everyone's making a decision that influences the customer's experience in the product of a solution. And so everyone really needs to build those skills. And I helped pioneer design thinking at um, you know, add into it along with, you know, a founding team, of course, um, that included Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit. And luckily for me, I was working on a project um, in India that was looking to use mobile phones to help farmers make more money for their produce. Um, and it became a, that project became a poster child for um, how to use design thinking in an organization and how to make rapid progress in innovation using design thinking. So that went on to be much celebrated. It, was a, it is a Harvard business case study. And uh, there's a lot of learning from that experience we went through where um, you know, within weeks, we had customers. Um, within months, we had um, you know, uh, million of millions of customers um, sort of subscribing to the service and being delighted by it. So um, that was huge. And I felt like that was sort of a life-changing experience for me um, to know that I can build a product from scratch and take it to scale. Um, it was time to do something different. And that's when I started uh, Pensar. I founded Pensar five years ago. And our entire goal at Pensar is to help our clients whether they're large companies or startups, understand their customers. And from that deep understanding, 
build experiences through products, through process, through solutions that completely delight the customer. So the customer cannot imagine going back to their old way of doing things. Um, so what I'm happy to say is luckily for us, um, we've been at the right time, at the right place. We've got a slew of customers all over the world that, have, um, that we've had the opportunity to work with and uh, influence their products and their customer experience. It's a pretty amazing story. Thank you for, for sharing and, uh, and congrats. Uh, absolutely, that's, that's an amazing track record. So where are you based today, Deepa, for curiosity of the audience? We're based in India, um, but in a city called Bangalore, which is further down south. Um, oh, it's absolutely. called the Silicon Valley of Valley India. Of India. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Great. And as you know, we always discuss three critical ingredients to, to scale in the show. And number one, radical focus. Number two, world-class leadership. And number three, the execution operating system. We are tailoring it even more to, to our guests so we can add more value and more flavor to, to the audience as well. And also to leverage the passions and, and the strengths of our guests. So starting with um, Radical Focus, I think that the scale-up community and, and, and the corporate leaders are all aligned on the importance of focus, but sometimes it's very difficult to practice focus or to know where to focus on. I know that you have developed the methodology that you shared uh, before, and you have some interesting frameworks and tools to help that focus to happen in a more, let's say, secure or confident uh, way. So what, what are some of your advice or some of your tools, some of your lessons learned with, with the, the work that you do with Pinsel? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things I feel, like you said, Mike, a lot of the leaders completely agree that, yes, you know, customers come first. There's not a single company that would disagree that, um, you know, they need to focus on innovation that they need to focus on understanding their customers as a way to innovate. Um, and, you know, every leader will tell you worldwide that um, they want to innovate. Um, there was a recent uh, study done where about 98% of the leaders said that they believe that their number one priority needs to be to innovate. And yet that same segment of uh, people said less, less than 4% of the people said they were happy with how innovative they were. So they desire to be innovative, but they aren't, right? And I think that's because the chances of success with innovation is so small. I think the worldwide stat is less than 1%. So as soon as you've decided to innovate, the odds are against you, right? So it's a scary thing to do. Um, and you have, you will definitely see more failure than you will success. So it's something that needs a lot of conviction as a leadership to go in and really innovate. Luckily, design thinking as a methodology, as the means to the end to innovate has become really popular in the recent years. And design thinking is something that designers always did, 
with thanks to IDEO who evangelized it to say anybody in an organization um, should be and can be applying these design thinking mindsets and methodologies. So it's really very simple. You know, it is start by understanding your customers and then go broad, you know, go diverse, uh, try lots of uh, divergent ideas till you converge and find the best solution, but have the humility to rapidly test that with customers. It's about building that deep empathy and falling in love with the problem versus the solution. And having that humility to rapidly experiment and test. So I feel like, um, you know, more and more companies are adopting it like the um, ability to understand customers. But I think what happens is that everyone has unconscious biases about their customers. And they're unconscious. So you can't even externalize it, right? They're unconscious. You're not even realizing, but you have a lot of unconscious biases. So design thinking helps you identify those biases, makes them more conscious. And it brings you to a place where you can have more conscious understanding about who your customers are what their needs are, what their desires are, and what they do today, all of those things. And that's what, you know, you have to get from a place of unconscious bias to conscious understanding. And you can do that iteratively through design thinking by understanding your customers. Um, some of the methodologies we use to do that is uh, jobs-based um, segmentation and research. So we do a lot of qualitative research. We go in, have conversations with people, understand what they're doing today, understand what their desires are, but most importantly, focus on what they're doing today and what we can improve to make their lives better. And so it's really about delighting that customer. It's going beyond what they expect of you, of your solution, of your process and delighting them, really giving them that wow experience. A lot of times when we say design, people think, oh yeah, you know, the colors and the buttons and the shape and the illustrations, but it goes so much deeper than that. It is those things, but more importantly, it's about truly understanding what is that problem that customer wants to solve and how are they doing it today? What roadblocks are they running into and how can your product just really give them that delightful experience so they really can't imagine doing their work without you. So we use the jobs-based methodology to understand what the needs are, the desires are, we segment customers based on the jobs and usually, you know, start with the MVP if you're a startup. Mm -hmm. If you're a larger company, we help you understand what might be some opportunity areas and adjacencies that you can explore, right. all with a mind towards one, increasing your customer base, and two, solving more needs for your current customer base. Does that make sense? So you're scaling in terms of number of products your customers can use, or number of problems you help them solve. That would be a better way to say it. And the other is, how can you make it so delightful that customers can't 
imagine going back to their old way. And so what do they do? They go tell their friends and family about it. And they come in and you have more customers coming into using your solutions. So I believe when done right, design is very measurable and it helps you see that hockey stick growth from a customer standpoint, because you're providing, you're going beyond customers' expectations. Right. I think that I think there, there is a great quote uh, or a great question to ask sometimes. What would happen if we if we would just tell our clients that we would uh, close tomorrow our specific right. product or, or all the company runs? Would they be happy, pissed off? They would not uh, have any reaction. They don't care about it. <laughs> so I think that that's a great question to to ask uh, even ourselves, right? Absolutely, certainly. Great point. So moving to number two, the world-class um, leadership. Um, what should be the role of the leader on innovation leadership and how they can empower their teams? Uh, so how can leaders have a more, uh, an, an impact, an higher impact on innovating for the customers as you said before? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, used to be that a leader had to have an answer. Like if, you know, let's say I, I work a lot in technology, so I'll, I'll give you a technology example. Um, let's say that we're building a product to um, deliver food. And, you know, sometimes leaders feel like they have to have an opinion on which direction to move forward. Um, and let me tell you, that's the worst thing a leader can do. None of us know what's going to be successful. None of us know what biases we have. And so a leader's job, I believe, is not to pick, hey, you know, go after solution A, B, or C. A leader's job is to ask the right questions of the team that's going out to seek these answers. Mm -hmm. To say, hey, can you help me understand what is the problem you're solving? Right. Make sure they understand the customer. Who is the customer? What problem do they have? Why can't they solve it today? And how does it make them feel that they can't solve it today? Like really define the problem and ensure that the team is actually falling in love with the problem versus the solution, right? And human beings were genetically engineered to solve problems. So as soon as you see a problem, you're thinking about a solution. So it's leader's job to say, hey, let's stay with the problem for a little bit. Let's understand the problem. And then let's start to ideate. And again, not ideate on the very, like not ideate and build the very first idea that you see, but actually come up with multiple ideas. So again, as a leader, if they're doing, if you're doing a project review and your team is showing you ideas that solve the problem, it's important to ask the question, what other ideas did you explore? Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10, teams are looking to the ground because that's the only idea they've explored. <laughs> Um, let's say that, um, you know, a leader actually has an opinion 
and says it's product A or product B or product C that should be the solution or idea A, idea B, idea C. What happens is um, we call these hippo decisions, highest paid person in the office decisions. Suddenly the entire team starts going a certain direction, whether they believe it or not. So I believe the leader should stay away from choosing and allow the process and customers to choose the right solution, but guide the teams by asking these kinds of questions. Another really important question to ask is, what does success look like? How will we know we're successful? And encourage that the teams actually define those parameters upfront itself, even before they have ideas to say, this is the problem, this is what success looks like. And to do that upfront so that the team is being set up for success then. So that's a very good point. And I think that it's really uh, bridges us to, to number three, right? So a lot of times we are executing without defining uh, what success looks like and what are we trying to solve. Um, it's, we are trying to be better, be more e efficient, uh, be more effective, but on what metrics, on what measures, right? Uh, on what and in what time frame. So, and it's, it becomes really, really difficult again to drive focus, to have the team engaged and motivated to really care about the customers and bring value to the customers that will be rewarded uh, as financial success for, for the company uh, as well. Because of course, if, if we are solving uh, huge problems for the customers, they will be more than happy to reward us with uh, part of that success and they will make it fair. And they will feel it uh, as a fair action to, to be made, right? True, true. I think, um, you know, the first thing is that um, focusing on innovation, since that's the area that we're speaking about today, yeah. um, we need to ensure that um, if I had a whiteboard, I'd draw this for you. But um, if you look at a Venn diagram, you need to first start with what is the deep unmet need that you've discovered? We talked about that in the radical thinking, right? The radical shifts. You need to identify the deep problem. So it needs to be something that's real, that's large enough for you to solve. The next overlapping sort of circle would be that you as a company can solve really well, that you have the skills to build the solution, whatever that might be, a technical solution or otherwise. And the third overlapping circle is to do that with durable competitive advantage. So, so that another company can't copy your idea just as quickly as you created it. What is that durable competitive advantage that you're creating? How are you giving yourself that unfair advantage? And it's not only about first to market, right? First to market is not a durable competitive advantage in multiple <laughs> cases, almost nine times out of 10. So the innovation really lies at the intersection of all those three circles. We have a deep unmet need that's large enough that you can solve well, that you can defend with durable competitive advantage, right? That you have, you're doing it in a way that others can't copy or not copy as easily. 
And really, you want to focus on that intersection of all three, desirability, feasibility, and marketability, more simply said. Um, so that's the first thing you have to do in your execution to make sure that you're not just building whatever you can build. You're building things that really solve a deep unmet need for a large segment of customers, that mm-hmm. you're being grounded in that reality of how do I build durable advantage? Um, and thinking about the business model, the feasibility, and the customers all at once. It's an important trifecta to think about. That's really important on execution. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is that if you look at any improvement you can make in a human being's life, it's threefold. You can either save them time, you can either make them more money or save more money, and you can increase the frequency of good things happening or decrease the frequency of a bad thing happening. Mm-hmm. It's those three. Time, money, frequency of something happening or not happening. So you need to articulate what that is through your solution, through your service, through your product, whatever it might be that you're creating as a company. What is that impact you're creating in the customer's life? These tend to be functional metrics. You also want to look at emotional metrics. You first want to start with functional, then you want to look at emotional, then you want to look at life-changing and possibly, you know, motherhood and alpha pi, like social. So there's like a hierarchy, right? But you want to start with the functional. What is that improvement you're causing in the customer's lives? It breaks my heart to see uh, startups measure what I call vanity metrics. Um, they look at how many downloads. That is just a feel-good metric. Yes, people downloaded it, but is your product actually benefiting them in terms of those three uh, dimensions of functional metrics that we talked about? Saving them time, giving them more money, frequency of bad good happening. Unless it's doing that, why will customers come back? So I think it's really important to define your metrics and be thoughtful about the functional, emotional, as well as life-changing metrics that you want to have happen through your company with your customers. And it's not always possible to measure the final goal, right? So I think it's important to look at the ultimate goal or metric that you have, often that's too late, right? So for example, um, we're working with um, an antivirus company that ultimately wants to ensure that people are feeling safe because they're using the antivirus uh, company's products. Um, Measuring safe is the final metric in terms of, and it's an emotional one. Remember I was talking about functional and emotional. Um, That's the ultimate goal. But what you want to do is you want to have leading indicators that help you more functionally measure so you know you're on the right track to that lagging indicator Mm -hmm. of feeling safe. So I think a company needs to articulate what are the leading as well as lagging indicators 
that communicate success and actively measure that um, throughout the company so that everyone knows the impact that they're making as a company, as an employee in the company. Um, so I think that's really important to measure. Now, there are so many metrics. We do a, a quick exercise when we work with leadership, Mike. We say, hey, you know, as a leader of company XYZ, write down all of the metrics that you think are important. And, you know, the list is long, right? You've got um, how profitability, you've got like, you know, your financial metrics, you've got your people metrics, you've got your customer metrics, you've got, you know, you've got a lot of metrics to look at as a yeah. company. <laughs> um, and then we ask them to circle the ones that are customer metrics. More often than not, very few leaders have listed customer metrics. And we point that out to them. And it's a big aha moment when people realize, when leaders realize that they're not actively measuring customer success. Um, so that's uh, you know, a big eye opener for them. And they realize that if they're not doing it, certainly um, you know, it's not getting cascaded elsewhere and their teams are unlikely doing it as well. Love it. I, I'm, I'm really passionate about customer success. And I think that's a very important issue in, in the business. And it should be kind of, as you were saying, almost connected to, to the mission and the vision because it's, it's so important to make customer successful. That's the, the purpose right. of the business. So that's, that's uh, an amazing point. And uh, thank you, Deepa, for, for sharing. And coming to the um, last question of the show and one of our favorites, which is if you'd have the opportunity to have a, a team with yourself and in the beginning of your career or even at the beginning of your journey with Tensar five years ago, what advice would you offer to your younger Deepa? Um, I've actually thought about this. Um, and so I'm able to give you a quick answer. I would love to tell my younger self um, to believe that I would be successful. To know that I would be successful. And the reason I have this answer for you so quickly, Mike, is that when I decided to um, move from you know, being in a large company, the comfort of a large company to doing my own thing, um, certainly it was nerve wracking. So one of my mentors gave me um, a really good suggestion. He said to speak to 50 people before I made that change. And I said, what would I say to the 50 people? He said, you would know what to say. And I had those 50 conversations um, with people. And what happened was I ended up more convincing them that I should do hands hard versus ask them questions, right? So I was more you know, convincing them than even asking questions. And, but I did ask every one of those 50 people uh, um, what, you know, the same question that you asked me. And they pretty much unanimously said, that I would be successful. I wish I could tell my younger self. Because there's a lot of anxiety and nervousness when you innovate. Like I said, 
99% of the times you're going to fail. Um, and yeah. so it's really nerve wracking when you try to do something differently. And it's easier to stay the path that everyone takes and be a little safer, to be vulnerable and to try your chances takes a lot of courage. And, um, you know, that's what I would tell my younger self that I would be successful. I love it. It kind of makes me think about the stats that I repeat several times, um, which is only 4% of all companies get to 1 million. Uh, under 0.04% get to 10 million, which means that less than 10% of the ones who get to 1 go to 10. And uh, under 0.04% gets to 100 million, right? And usually VC-backed businesses are trying to do this journey from zero to 100 million in, in less than a decade. And so they are trying to do something that's 0.004% were able to do in a lifetime, not in just a decade. Not to talk about the large corporates that we also work with. Uh, that get into 1B or 10B or 100B uh, in, in revenue, which, which shows how amazing, how fantastic uh, it is. So which completely links with what you, what you, you just said. So um, there to, to succeed. <laughs> Deepa, thank you so much for making the time. It was really a pleasure to have you with, with us. Thank you, Mike. And if I can just say one last thing to wrap it up. Absolutely. That, um, you know, when you know what your customers are going through, like really deeply empathize with the customer problem you're trying to solve through your company's products or solutions or services. When you do that, you're going to be so passionate about solving their problems. You will delight them. And when you delight them, they will tell others and more will come. So I think when you start by really focusing on understanding customer needs that you can solve well in a durable competitive fashion, that you will be successful. Just wanted to end with that. Love it. That's, that's a great highlight. Thank you, Deepa, uh, again for, for joining us. Appreciate you having me. It was a pleasure chatting. Likewise. So this was Deepa Bachu, the founder and CEO at Pensar Design. We keep bringing you the best of the best. So wish you an amazing journey scaling up and see you soon. And of course, keep scaling. Thank you.